Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is speaking with Dr. Leanne Dubinsky and Dr. Annika Stassen. Leanne and Annika are co-authors of a new book called Women in the Mission of the Church. This book tells the story of faithful women throughout church history, demonstrating their integral participation in the church's mission. Leanne is Associate Dean and Associate Professor of Intercultural Education and Studies and Director of the Intercultural Education Graduate Program at Biola University. Annika is Associate Professor of Humanities and History at Indiana Wesleyan University. We are so pleased to welcome both of them to the podcast today. Welcome both Annika and Leanne. Thank you so much for coming around the Alabaster Jar podcast and talking with us about your terrific book, Women in the Mission of the Church, Their Opportunities and Obstacles Throughout Christian History. This is practically an encyclopedia, except it's fun to read instead of <laughs> kind of the boring encyclopedia. There's so many women in there. I have to say, I found on page, what is it, 150, Florence Nightingale. And I have to share with you, I she was my hero when I was mm -hmm. in grade school, I must have read, you know, a, a biography of hers uh, geared to that age. And for about a year, I was determined to be a nurse. I don't know what eventually shifted me from that goal, but her, her uh, mission and her character really captured my imagination. I'd love to, uh, were there women that you met in your uh, research that, um, uh, that, you didn't know about and suddenly now you realize, wow, I have this historical friend. Maybe we could start with Annika and uh, tell, tell us a little bit about your uh, discovery as you were working on this book. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Lynn. And it's really funny that you just mentioned uh, Florence Nightingale because on that same page, the very next woman listed is the one that I wanted to talk about. And we didn't even plan this, I promise. We did not. Um, no. Think alike, you know. Yes. Um, so I wanted to talk about Pandita Ramabai, who is an Indian woman um, at the end of the 1800s. And what's interesting is that just like Florence Nightingale's dad, uh, Pandita Ramabai's dad broke tradition and totally allowed his daughter to be educated. Um, and so in Pandita Ramabai's case, uh, this was being educated in the Hindu texts. She was a high caste Hindu woman um, and she learned these texts, in fact, so well that later on um, among kind of educated circles in India at the time, um, she got this title of Pandita which means learned master. So she was seen as a master of the Hindu texts. Um, and she, she got married. Uh, she started noticing Christians, uh, particularly the nuns who were out there caring for the poor on the margins of society. And keep in mind, you know, that Pandita is this high caste Hindu woman. Um, so she was just really struck by that, by the fact that her people weren't caring for these, uh, these poorer individuals and yet these uh, these nuns were and that really struck a chord in her. She became interested in Christianity. She read the Gospel of Luke. Her husband didn't love the idea of her converting. Uh, she didn't, but what ended up happening was that her husband actually passed away. Um, and in a strange way that kind of freed the path for her towards conversion. 
and she went to England. She trained in medicine. And she, she got this vision for something that she wanted to do, which was to start a school for high caste Hindu widows. So these were women, um, they, they had been child brides, their husbands had died, um, and now there was nothing for them. And so they became like all the other outcasts, just kind of out there begging on a daily, uh, for their daily living. And she wanted to start a school for them. And she traveled to America and she got all kinds of Christians in this country to sign on to her project. She also got Hindus back in India, uh, progressive Hindus to sign on to this idea. She founded this school, but what ended up happening was that all these girls at her school started converting from Hinduism to Christianity because they found this woman so inspiring and so beautiful that they just, they became Christians too. So obviously this was kind of a problem for the Hindu supporters of her school they pulled out, the Christians from America and around the world continued to support her. Um, and, and so she continued with this mission. She never married again. Um, and it, this was also kind of right around the time of uh, the Azusa Street revival. So early 1900s, um, birth of Pentecostalism. What's so interesting is that while that's going on in California, she also kind of has these, these spirit led types of experiences. And so you see the percolating, Pentecostalism, if you want to call it that, over in India at this time too. Um, and another thing I really love about her is that she translated the Bible. Uh, there was a Marathi translation which used Indian terms, and she saw this as being very problematic for women um, because these terms carried with them all kinds of um, negative repercussions for women. And so she decided, you know, this is part of the problem, like both in Hinduism and in the Christianity that's been brought to us, is that this scripture that we have um, is conveying something that she saw as untrue when she read the stories of Jesus and his interactions with women. So I love that she did all these things. Um, and lastly, I love that she said that the Lord's prayer is the perfect prayer. And um, I don't know where you guys are all at with the Lord's prayer. But, you know, for me, yeah, it's a prayer. It's a prayer I've learned. But when I read Pandita talking about it as the perfect prayer, it just kind of made me go back to the Lord's prayer and look through it and be like, you're right, Pandita, like, this is an amazing prayer. Um, so, so yeah, there's some things about Pandita Ramabai um, that I just, I just love about her. Oh, that, that's an amazing, amazing story. And uh, all the, um, all the lives that she touched in what three continents? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Leanne, is there a, a unknown woman that you met in this project that uh, really impressed you? Well, I think the thing that was so interesting for me was less that these women were unknown, but more that it was unknown to me that they were actually Christians. So you mentioned Florence Nightingale, right? I read about her in my secular history books, but I, none of them mentioned mm -hmm. that she had this deep, profound faith and that that was what motivated her. The same could be said of some of the great reformers that we talk about from um, race reform in the U.S., same kind mm -hmm. of thing, or women who campaigned for women's rights. They were doing that out of faith, so they're in our secular textbooks, but for some reason they don't make it into our Christian history texts. And I find that kind of puzzling and kind of sad because we have this great tradition of important women that we're not telling our, ourselves, among ourselves as Christians, we're not telling their stories and how their faith motivated them. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And I mean, as historians, do you, 
Do you have any suspicions about why the church is reluctant to celebrate the faith of, of these women and their, their accomplishments? Well, I, mean, I, I, I know that there's backlash at times. I'll kind of answer this a little bit as I threw you this question. Sorry. But, um, <laughs> of, you know, sometimes there's this revival and women are um, in the forefront of um, preaching the gospel. So they're out there in public and they have what we might call like um, uh, an informal authority. People are listening mm-hmm. to them. They don't have a, a formal role in the church, but people are listening to them. They have influence in decisions. And there can be sometimes a backlash against that. So in the uh, Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening, maybe of women preaching, and then there's a pullback. And I think you talk about that a little bit. Is that mm-hmm. just kind of things that it's just the ebb and flow of how humans operate or, um, yeah, just, just kind of trying to puzzle through why is it mm-hmm. that there's a pullback when, when we have some steps forward? Mm-hmm. Yes, right. And that is one of the patterns that we have kind of noted throughout this book, that so often at the beginning of a movement, at the beginning of a new organization, women are welcomed in, their gifts, their voices, they're brought in, they can do all of the work. But then as time goes on, right? It becomes more bureaucratized or a movement wants to become more socially acceptable. And then they start pushing the women back out to the margins. And we're not the first ones by any means to note this pattern, but we did see it and kind of call attention to it throughout the book, because it is, it is quite noticeable at this point with 2000 years of the same pattern being repeated. Yes. Yeah. Um, Were there other themes that, that you, I mean, you cover a lot of ground in your book. Were there other themes that you found related to women's experiences in the church? One of them being, you know, that there's this ebb and flow. Sometimes women are given a lot of opportunity and then within a generation or two, it's pulled back. Are there other themes you might Mm -hmm. see through women's history? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were. I think we tried to call attention to two more really prominent themes. One was just how creative and resilient the women can be. Every single era we looked at had some kind of constraints that society was trying to put on women. And we watched how women would turn those constraints into something that they could use. And interestingly, even when the, the script would flip over <laughs> from one time period to another, they would just flip with it. So, for example, the medieval women were thought to be more bodily. And so they used that understanding of themselves as more bodily to represent the suffering of Christ, right? Either by fasting and engaging their bodiliness or by feeding others. But then in the Victorian area, that script flipped and women were seen as more physical and men as more spiritual. And so women used their supposed moral superiority to advocate for why they needed to be involved in ministries. So whatever, it's sort of like whatever society threw at them, they could just take that and turn that and use it Enable to to enable themselves to fill their calling that God had asked them to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sorry, just have to throw it in because you got rolling, and I think you you uh, flipped the script Did there. I flip it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yes, yeah. So just the in in the Victorian era, they're seen as the angel in the house. You know, right. they're seen right. as the more spiritual one, um, and that was that was so striking to see that flip too. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, to see the resilience and okay, if this is how we are, if we're able to kind of reform within our households, like look at this, we can also use that understanding of women's 
spiritual superiority to say, shouldn't women also be out in society working to change society? And so it's, it's fascinating. And it seems like, you know, these women are feeling called from God. Um, they have a, their own vibrant personal faith, this very real relationship with Jesus. And then like being called to preach or to found a school or to do whatever it is, but then they encounter these blocks out in society. And it's like, well, how do I fulfill this call on my life? Well, also not just, you know, be in the case of the preachers, you know, if they're trying to follow their call, they get labeled a prostitute because why else would they be out there preaching and letting men look at their bodies and listen to their voice? But meanwhile, they're just trying, to, they're trying to fulfill God's call in their life. So, I mean, it's, it's like what Leanne said earlier, it's both inspiring, but also really sad. You know, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, and yet the history shows us it has been this way. Um, so I think for us, it's a matter of, you know, wanting to wanting our eyes to see this history, but then also wanting wanting us to be able to envision a different way forward and kind of seeing our present day as a, an important moment um, for us to both look back and also dream about ways that we do want our communities to be. Yeah, let's, uh, and I, I agree. I, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about what are the obstacles you see today mm -hmm. as most destructive for women? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think one thing when we were writing this book, we really wanted people to see that there's not just one role for women. Um, we wanted people to be aware that look at our history. Um, look at all these diverse ways that women have served as preachers, as deaconesses, as school teachers, as wives, as mothers. And I mean, depending on what, what circle you get raised in. Um, but I think a lot of the circles where I teach within, um, my students have this sense of to be the proper woman, I need to get married, I need to have children, and I need to be the primary one kind of overseeing the home life. Um, and I think that's a beautiful life. I, I don't want anyone to hear us saying that that's not. I just want he people to hear us say that that's not the only way to be a Christian woman. Like plenty of women in this history that we've told did not get married. That is not the be all end all of being a Christian woman you know, all the nuns or those early virgins or uh, many of the women actually in China that became leaders in the church did not um, did not marry. And this was seen as glorifying to God. Um, and similarly, you know, not having to, to only preside over the home, but be out in society as well. Well, and I think in both those cases, getting married and having children, there's a lot beyond an individual's control. <laughs> That I mean, you know, uh, at least in those cultures that where marriage is not arranged or or forced, but the couple has a choice, uh, takes two. And yeah. then with having children, um, birth children or adoption, those things aren't always uh, well. They're not under the control of. And it's interesting how women uh, it are kind of told this is the way you succeed. And yet there's so much to chance almost, if you will, you know, uh, to, or, or you're, you know, maybe drawn it to kind of manipulate. I mean, how, how do you make somebody fall in love with you? How do, how do you, you know, get pregnant? I mean, it's just, so what your book, what I found so helpful in your book is you emphasize those aspects of women's lives where, they took what was around them 
and their call of God and uh, by God, and then just impacted around them as their uh, as as they could. Instead of waiting for others or circumstances beyond their control to kind of work themselves out, and then they could start living, Mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Just one more thing, and then I know Leanne wants to say something. But as a professor, for some reason, I just always feel that part of my role, too, is to tell young women that they don't have to settle. I feel like so many women have the sense of like, well, I got this guy. He's pretty good. Um, I know that it's, he's not really like at my same level of faith commitment or something. I just feel like this is often, I'm in a conversation with a young woman right now. um, And I just want to say like, look at all these amazing women. Like they didn't settle for a husband or they didn't settle for like, like Lynn is saying the perfect situation. Um, But, but just got about following God um, and having God be at the center of their life, not like a husband at the center of their life. So, but Leanne, did you want to say more about obstacles? Well, I really, no, that's great. I really liked what you said, Lynn, about, um, agency, right? We want to portray in our book that our women, these women had agency. They didn't just sit around and wait for something to happen. And sometimes I hear that narrative told to Christian women too, you know, you just have to wait until God opens a door. And we have a lot of women in our book who knocked on that door, Right, because they knew God was calling them to that door, so they went ahead and knocked. Um, but when I, when we, when we think about these destructive obstacles, honestly, it makes me really sad. I work with uh, adults and um, a lot of women in practical spheres, and I have heard so many stories of women who've just walked away. They walk away from the church. Some of them walk away from the faith completely, and it's because they didn't fit into this one box that has been told to them is the right way to be a Christian woman. And so they look at the box and they say, I don't fit. And instead Mm -hmm. of saying the box must be wrong, they say, I must be wrong. And they walk away. Mm -hmm. And that just really makes me sad. And so one of our hopes from this book is that it will encourage women who perhaps have not seen themselves quite so much in the things that are told to them who don't fit in that box to say, oh, but there is still a place for me in God's kingdom. There is still a place for me in this Christian faith to live out my calling, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as, um, as I was thinking about so, so many of the examples in this, uh, in your book involved in some way or another education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you, and you're both in, you're both educators. So I just uh, wondered, you know, how, how has the education of women made a difference for the church? And I'll, I'll kind of explain it maybe a little bit more where I'm coming from as an, as someone who works in the new Testament at the time of the new Testament, the uh, literacy rate was not as high as what we have today. And formal education is not like what most of us in the Western world and, and part, you know, really around the globe um, education is just held as a value, but there's some, uh, conflict maybe about how girls should be educated, how old or how long should girls stay in school. And so I think there, there is, though, this worldwide push for girls to be educated. And I just wondered if you could reflect a bit on how does that emphasis on education shape our churches? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one thing I just love about the mission movement uh, is that whether you're talking about Africa, China, India, 
that as the missionaries arrive in the 1800s, they establish schools for girls. Uh, and this is revolutionary, um, you know, for the church, but also for society. So the area that I'm working in right now, actually in a new project with Leanne, again, we've had so much fun. Um, but so I've jumped into doing some research on China, um, kind of early 1900s. And so these women that were Christian became the first educated women in Chinese society. They were the first women to study abroad. Uh, so it was Christian women were the first ones studying abroad. Christian women were the first ones being doctors and uh, teachers in society. Um, and again, like I said earlier, many of them chose to remain single uh, in order to be able to pursue their career, which they saw as serving China and answering God's call on their lives as Christian women. Um, and then it just kind of had other repercussions like, you know, a different vision of a, of a woman in China. Again, like in so many societies, it's assumed a woman would get married. Um, so similarly, you know, these Christian educated women were showing that it was possible to be single. Um, and also they were able to be just as celebrated as the sons in the Chinese families. Um, they were able to bring their families honor. Um, they were able to bring income to support their, their parents. Um, and so you see a society that had previously in Confucian teaching, highlighted the relationships between sons and fathers. And actually, you know, wives were in many ways part of that equation just to serve the, the son's parents and to take care of the son's parents. And so you see that arrangement going more towards an arrangement whereby the husband and wife relationship is prioritized over the parent and child relationship. And I think this has repercussions um, for society, clearly for individual families, um, but also for the church and not like this is an easy transition. Like there's lots of conflict figuring all that out as we all know. Um, but that was something that was really interesting to me. It all started with the education of girls. All of these repercussions started there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Leanne. Well, I was just thinking, we also tell the story in the book about how educated women or women educators going as missionaries to China became part of the social movement to end foot binding. And that's something that just has had massive repercussions for China. And it's noted well outside of the Christian mm -hmm. literature, right? That um, this practice that had been going on for a thousand years was helped in its being overturned by the education and educators of girls and women. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what, what uh, uh, astounds me is some uh, some people who advocate for the status quo and yet also think, oh, but we should educate girls, sometimes don't recognize those can go to cross purposes. Mm -hmm. you know? and I remember this was years ago. We were involved in a, a country, um, uh, maybe it was Afghanistan, I'm not sure, um, that, and the U.S. being involved there and saying we don't want to, you know, build a democracy there. We're not trying to interfere with the Afghans. The only thing is we do think the, all the girls should be educated. And I, mm -hmm. I thought, okay, <laughs> yep. <laughs> there's a naivete there. Cause if you educate those girls, you're giving them, yep. as you say, Leanne agency, and you're opening up uh, windows of, mm -hmm. and, and dreams and providing confidence and the, 
and and it is it's bound to make a difference then in their in how they understand themselves and and hopefully um, do those kinds of good works for for their society and their families. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we've talked we've talked a lot about um, various women, and I uh, as we've had this conversation. But I would love to know: Do you have? a favorite historical woman. And this is kind of maybe like the question of who's your favorite kid. So I don't <laughs> to the exclusion of others, but I'd love tell us one of your favorite historical right. women and, and why she's special to you. That's true. That's yeah. true. Who should go like should I go, go in? For it, Leanne. Okay. So I think the woman that was just the most fun for me to learn about in this entire project was Amy Temple McPherson. I had heard about her very briefly in seminary, and she was dismissed by my male professor as uh, flighty and irresponsible. And I really didn't know anything about her other than sort of um, that he was kind of dismissive of her. So fast forward to about two years ago before the pandemic, and I was invited to the headquarters of that denomination, which is here in Los Angeles, and I got to tour um, her, her home. They've turned her home into a museum to show all the things that she did. And the more I started to learn about this woman, the more amazed I was. She had a very difficult life. She got married young and went to China as a missionary and her husband died on the field and she had to come home by herself pregnant and give birth, move back in with her mom, had a very clear call to ministry, started preaching in her area. Um, A local businessman took a shine to her. That seemed like a good idea. So she married him but he was very opposed to her ministry and eventually basically dumped her. Um, So here she is with a young child. She makes her way across the country from the East Coast out here to Los Angeles, preaching all the way across the country, right? Open air revivals, many, 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 many people come to Christ. She gets here, she sets up a church. She has very progressive ideas for her time. She pioneered Christian radio. She figured out that people who couldn't come to church could hear the gospel through the radio. She became the first woman to get a radio license. She pioneered the what she called the dramatic sermon where things were acted out on the stage so that whether people were literate or not didn't matter. They could see and understand. Um, looking back now, kind of through the lens of mission, she was highly aware of her context. She's here next door to Hollywood. So putting on a drama on Sunday morning is a great way to attract people. She raised food and money for the during the Great Depression, more than the city of Los Angeles. And she was very progressive, too, on race issues. She expected everybody to come to church and sit together. And she didn't care what, whether you were black or white or Asian or Hispanic or poor or wealthy. She just expected everybody to come in and worship God together. So just learning about all the things that she did mm-hmm. was so encouraging for me. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. inspiring. Very yeah. inspiring. Annika, do you have a favorite? Yeah. Uh, so for me, it's Ida B. Wells. And when we were doing this project, I have a colleague down the hall from me who um, does a lot of research on the history of race and religion in America. And so I just hit him up for ideas of women I should be sure to look at. And so he told me about her. And um, it's been interesting since then. I've checked out books from the library to introduce my children to, to Wells. And it's like what Leanne said earlier, that often their faith is not talked about in other contexts. And so um, this is a woman, African-American woman, born into slavery at the end um, of the 1800s. And she 
became the foremost uh, anti-lynching activist um, at the end of the 1800s. And, you know, lynching this horrible process whereby people are killed without a trial. And uh, the largest number of these people were African-American. And so she was out there speaking out against this horrific stuff. Um, And it was her faith that motivated her to be out there. And so you often hear about her um, as an anti-lynching activist, but early on in her life, she was, um, she sat in a train car, the ladies car, she was kicked out by the conductor, sent to another train car. Um, and, you know, she fought this, she took the, the railroad to court, she actually won. Um, but then a little while later, the decision got reversed. And so you can read her crying out to God, like, you know, where are you, God? Like, you're the God that, that delivered your people from, from uh, slavery in Egypt. And she's calling out to this God that she knows. Um, and so I was just really, really impressed by her faith. Uh, she taught Sunday school for many, many years and inspired the young. She taught the, uh, this older woman, like taught the 18 to 30 year old men. I don't know why she was the one teaching, teaching that age group. But they were saying things to her like, oh, there's nothing we can do. Life will never get better. Like we have such a bad lot. And she wouldn't let them accept that. Um, she helped them to say, no, we can we can try to change American society. We can fight against racism and lynching. Um, and so she was just really inspiring to me again, like her resilience, the way that she clung to faith to get her through. She also was, you know, I've talked a lot about singleness. She was not single. She was married. She had children. Um, so even seeing her take time away from her kind of public life to spend time with her home, with her family, um, when she only had one kid, she was still on the lecture circuit. But when she had several, she stayed home. So that too, as a as a working mother, was interesting for me to kind of get that lesson from her. And as the children got older, she, she went back out there. Um, so she was inspiring to me and so helpful in so many ways. And I have to say my daughter, Mary Lou, is um, going to be Ida B. Wells for the Faces of History project at her homeschool co-op. So that's always a super fun thing for me when I get to share these stories with my children and then see them, you know, embrace the stories for themselves and also share these stories with their homeschool group. Because of course there was only four women out of the list of like a hundred guys that you could dress up as. So another one of my missions is to, to send the homeschool co-op people just lots more names of amazing women that these young people can dress up as. Oh yeah. And, and emulate both men Mm -hmm. and women, young boys and girls to emulate the kind of resilience, the passion for the gospel. And I'm going to say resilience again and perseverance. The two examples Mm -hmm. you used that those women um, just did not accept, accept defeat. And what Mm -hmm. a, what a testimony to the spirits leading and sustaining in that the book is called women in the mission of the church. And it is, a fabulous read. uh, And I would encourage all of our listeners to get it. I want to thank you both, Annika and Leanne, for spending this half hour with us talking about um, the amazing women of the church's history. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lynn. Yeah, thank you for having us.